right, brother from uh, Alabama. No, oh, okay, all right. Um, but we do want to, um, we didn't get a chance to acknowledge our visitors this morning. So do we have any first time visitors? Any first time visitors? Okay, if not, um, our scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of John. Very appropriate song as we um, look at this final Sunday of Advent preparing for the birth of our Savior. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, when we speak of the birth of Jesus, John captures the essence of the incarnation and the birth of Jesus in two interconnected concepts that he uses throughout his gospel and are really central to his gospel. And those two concepts that really summarize the nature and the intent and the essence of the birth of Jesus is wrapped around the concept of Jesus is the life and the source of life, and Jesus is the light and the source of light. Now, these are the two concepts. In fact, it comes together in a very particular and profound way in John's, in, in the text that we have here, because he says that he was light or life and that life was the light of men. So since these concepts are so important, not only in John's gospel, but throughout the New Testament, but especially in John's gospel, because we find actually that in some way or another, these concepts appear in combination approximately 48 to 50 times in the gospel of John alone. The idea of Jesus as being life and the source of life and or the source of life or Jesus as light and or the source of light. They appear at least 50, almost 50 times in the Gospel of John alone. So therefore, let's begin by trying to gain an understanding of what he means when he uses these two terms. We'll begin with the idea, with the... with. Um, uh, the, the concept of light uh, or life. What does John mean when he uses the word life in his gospel? And we'll begin by looking at three primary Greek words that are translated in the New Testament for life. Two of them only, only two of them appear in the gospel of John, but it's helpful to understand all three. The first one is bios, B-I-O-S, and it simply refers to the physical life of the body. The physical life of the body. Interestingly enough, this is the one that is not used in John's gospel at all. So when John speaks of life, he is talking about something more than the physical life of the body. The second term that's used is suki, S-U-K. P-S-U-C-H-E, 
which is a Greek word that means the psychological uh, life of the human soul. The psychological life of the human soul. And this includes mind, emotion, and will. Suki is the root word from which we get the word psychology. So the psychological, the immaterial life of the physical body is a word that is also translated as life, referring to, again, mind, emotion, and will. And the third one that is used quite a bit throughout the Gospel of John is Zoe, Z-O-E, Zoe. And, and like other words, uh, Greek words as used by the New Testament writers, uh, sometimes they take existing Greek words and pour deeper meaning into them. For instance, with the Greek word agape, which means love, they came to own it almost in a, in a unique way where agape referred specifically to the love that is in God and the love that is given from God. It's a, it's, it's, so it has a unique term, or a, new, a unique use, I should say, among uh, New Testament Greek writers that were Christian. And the same is true for the word zoe. In, wor in Greek, the word zoe simply means life. But as it was used by the New Testament writers, it came to mean something more specific. And the way John uses it in his gospel, Zoe refers to the uncreated eternal life of God or eternal life and fellowship with God. So Zoe, that principle of life that's used by John throughout his gospel, refers to the uncreated eternal life of God or the eternal life and fellowship with God. So therefore, that being the case with these three uses, as we indicated, uh, the one time that um, the, 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 of the three different Greek words for life, the one that does not occur in John's writing is bios. So what John is referring to, uh, in fact, of the ten times that John uses the word life in conjunction with Jesus, he never uses bio, but instead, which is to say, I should say, that when he uses, when he says that Jesus is life, in essence, what John is saying is that Jesus is the source uh, of that which ought to be, that which governs, I should say, ought to govern all of the human soul. Jesus is the source of what ought to govern the whole of the human soul in terms of its thoughts, its emotions, and its affections. Jesus in him was life. Life that is that ought to be the spirit life of all humans. That's what Jesus was. But also, he means by using Zoe in connection with Jesus, it is to say that Jesus is the source and Jesus is the means of eternal fellowship with God the Father. This is the way John means it, I think, when he refers in John 3.16, he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not die, but have everlasting life, Zoe. 
So we have Zoe through Christ. We have the life, we have eternal fellowship and life from God through belief in Jesus Christ. So when we put those two concepts together, that of the, the, the spiritual, the psychological, the emotional state of, of the human soul is perfectly met in the person of Christ. And in Christ, we have the only way of eternal fellowship with God the Father. Now, that's a, that's a, a broad understanding, but basically that's what John means when he speaks of Jesus as being life. He is the life giver because he puts us in fellowship with God and he is the ultimate human life that is lived before men in a manner in his internal existence that is pleasing to the Father. Now, also as it relates to the word light, we've talked about life, but John uses two Greek words for light. Now, one is what is used primarily, but the two are this. The first one in John 5.35, it's, it's pre pretty simple, lukanos, and it simply means a lamp, a lamp, which is basically a, a means of, of giving light. So it, it refers to a portable lamp. But the other one that's used most uh, often throughout John, in fact, the only place outside of John, uh, the only place that, uh, that doesn't use phos, P-H-O-S, for light is John 5.35. Everywhere else in the Gospel of John, the Greek word that's translated for light as it relates to Jesus is phos. And it simply means illuminous or to shine. Now, as such, with the imagery and the analogy of light in conjunction with the concept that Jesus is life, then John is making the point that Jesus is the source by which the purpose of life is illuminated. Jesus is the source by which the purpose of life is is illuminated. Let me put it in a way that um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism expresses it. It puts it this way. Question one, Shorter, uh, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one is what is the chief end of man? And the catechism answers that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, we, that, we, we don't speak in terms of man's chief end. That's just not a modern way of speaking. Another way of putting it is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism is asking is what is the purpose of human life? What is the purpose of human life? And the answer is the purpose of human life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So then the question is how does one glorify God? And the answer to that is you glorify God by loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and with all of your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is what it means to glorify God. And it's in that realm in which we honor him. So therefore, the purpose of human life, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of human life? The purpose of human life is to be connected vertically with God and proof that we are connected vertically with God is that we are connected horizontally with our fellow image bearers. 
Jesus gives the essence of the law, that's the way he describes it. What is the, he says, what is the, what is the law? What does the law require to love God with all of your heart, soul, and strength and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself? So therefore, the purpose for our existence is to be in harmony vertically with God and horizontally with, uh, with one another as image bearers of God. Now, uh, again, uh, our horizontal relationship is proof of our vertical relationship. Now, here's our problem. So if that's what we say, that's our purpose in life. The human purpose, it's not individually defined. It's not what is my destiny versus someone else's destiny. Here's what we, where we begin. The purpose of all human beings, whether you are short or tall, whether you are fast or slow, whether you are artistic or not, the purpose of every human life, what defines the purpose or the essence of every human life is to be in harmony vertically with the creator and horizontally with our fellow image bearers. But here's our problem in our fallen state. We are disconnected vertically, and we are at odds horizontally. And because of that, we define our purpose on this earth not by vertical connection, nor by horizontal connections, but we define our purpose on earth by our own standards. We define the purpose of life not in conjunction with being connected or committed to God or connected or committed to others vertically, but rather we say that the purpose of life is more often than not, it is defined by the affections and the appetites of the individual fallen person. So in other words, from this perspective, from, from this, 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 our fallen perspective, our purpose, our destiny is not connected to God, but it's connected to ourselves. It's connected, as Luther says, that one of the, in, in his description of the fallen condition, he says, we are inclined or bent in on ourselves. You see, in creation, God created us upright so that we would see and understand the connection between fellowship with him and fellowship horizontally. And therefore, we define our purpose in creation according to God's purpose, to love him and to demonstrate our love for him vertically or horizontally. But however, in our fallen condition, we now define our purposes uh, differently, according to our own affections and according to our own appetite. So from this broader perspective, the biblical concept of darkness, and this is where this is critical, the biblical concept of darkness is not first and foremost immorality. So when the Bible talks about the darkness of the fallen condition, he's, he's not talking first and foremost about our sexual perversions or our desire to hurt and harm others. But what the Bible is essentially defining as darkness in contrast to the light is the fallen human condition is, is or actually put it this way, 
our, the, all of our immorality is the result of our defining the human purpose. Not being connected to God and not being connected to others, but defining the human purpose by our own affections and our own fallen appetites. That's where our immorality comes from. That we define our purpose on this earth not by our love for God, nor by our connection and committed to our fellow image bearers, but we define our purpose on this earth according to our own affections and our own appetites. Lamech demonstrates this powerfully in the early chapters of Genesis. I think Genesis chapter 4 at the end where after Cain has been cursed and then Lamech just bold. He says, yeah, I know Cain has killed someone, but I'm willing to kill. I'll kill any man who looks at me in a particular way. And when God gave Adam one wife, Lamech said, I'll take two. Because our immorality flows from how we define our purpose on this earth. And so when we talk about the immorality or darkness, and the Bible talks about the darkness of the human fallen or the fallen human condition, that darkness, the, the, the immorality and all of the, 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 the spicy sins that we are familiar with, those are only the fruit. But the reason those are the pursuits is because of the darkness or because of the, the way we define our existence. We define our existence not being connected to God and not by being connected to others but we define it as Lamech does, as doing whatever feels right for me and whatever feels good to me. Now, uh, let, me, let me demonstrate the way Jesus uh, kind of illustrates this dynamic of what darkness and light really are. Um, but in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, Jesus says this, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So pause there for a moment. The eye, in essence, is the light that, de that, that defines the world that we live in. In other words, the, the light, the how we, what we do is according to how we see. And so Jesus says that the eye of the body, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy then your whole body will be full of light. But then he says this, but if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? That's what Jesus says. Now, I think of the great theologian Bob Dylan, who when describing the fallen mind or the fallen human condition he says all he believes are his eyes, and his eyes just tell him lies. That's us. That's darkness. So, so here's what Jesus says. He says what you are calling, when you hit a switch, and the light that comes on is darkness, then how great is that darkness? And the reason it is so exponentially great is because you think that it's light. You think that it's light. So when we see people do certain things, 
When we see people that are are inconsiderate towards others, when we see people in their immorality, the reason they do it is because in their eye, it is right. And you say, well, then why do they sneak to do some of it? Well, here's what we've seen is a boldness, number one, of what we do, but part of the reason people will always sneak to do is because they, they know you don't think it's right. But we do what we do because we think that it's right. The reason we think that it's right is because we think that we are on this earth. It's, it's like they, I have a friend who had, his, he and his wife just had a baby in Indiana, and so I hadn't talked to him um, we were there a few months ago. They had the baby uh, about two weeks after we got home. And I hadn't spoken to him yet, so I spoke to him. I texted him, and I said, hey, uh, so how is the new addition to the family? How are you guys adjusting to her rule? <laughs> I said, because, you know, she, she now dominates, right? Because she's now in control. And one of the things that babies, and, and this is why, you know, we all want to remain babies, right? Because we continue to be the boss. We are the boss. And, and, and here's the thing. They, their, their perception, when they get here, and, and you, you can imagine where this comes from. It makes sense. When they come here, all they have to do is cry. You put something in their mouth. You give them something to eat. Hmm, that works. Right? And then they reach and you pick them up. Or they just sit there and you, you pick them up. So there's always available arms. Somebody else is giving them food. And you don't even have to close the door to go into the bathroom. You just, you know, and somebody else will take care of that. So why wouldn't you think that the world revolves around you? They are at your beck and call. And sometimes I've seen babies, I'm not going to name babies. You know, that's the problem when you have only one child. If you start talking about children, then, you know, it's only one. So you can't say, well, what are my children? So I'm not going to name names. But there are some babies that will give test cries. You know, yeah. See how fast you come. Right? Because the world revolves, that's the light through which they see the world. And, and so here's what, 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 what we see, man defines him, if man defines himself by himself, then his commitment and connection to others is automatically diminished. But it is only as we are plugged into a greater life or greater light, that we will see the true purpose of life. And what John does in his gospel is he tells us that the way that you have experienced life is according to the light that you use. And if the light is the economy, if light, if the light by which you judge your life is your accomplishments, your possessions, he says, That's, then you need, you need another light. And it's for this reason that Jesus entered the world. He enters the world to give us a greater light that shows us 
a greater purpose for our lives. It says, he says it best in John 10, 10. He says, I have come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. And what have we done with that? We've messed up what he's meant by abundant life. What Jesus means by abundant life is not more stuff. It's not more things or more toys. It's not greater accolades for ourselves. But the, the more abundant life that Jesus offers is us being connected to the Father and that reconnects us horizontally. There are three things that we want to touch on briefly, extrapolate from our text because of what John says. Three statements that I think is a concise understanding of the essence of Jesus' condescension and incarnation on our behalf. Number one, John says that Jesus is in him was life and that life was the light of men. So if we look at that statement in verse 4 that Jesus is in him is life and his life becomes the light of men. I think what, one way we can understand John's words here is to say that Jesus is the embodiment of God's intended purpose for human life. Same as the women, or when, uh, when uh, the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, when she encounters Jesus at the well, she goes to the men who gave her her bad reputation, and she says, come see a man. And in essence, if you really want to see what human life is supposed to be, and I don't mean this just as role model. What I'm saying is what we see in Jesus is human life as it is intended to be, where he is at one with the Father, and the Father is pleased with him. And the proof of his oneness with the Father is to do the will of the Father on planet Earth even against all of the objections, even with people not understanding it, what we see in Jesus is human life as God intended it to be on planet Earth. He is, he is in fellowship with the Father. He loves what the Father loves. His meat is to do the will of the Father. The Father affirms that he is pleased in him. And he says there is nothing that he does on his own. Jesus is not trying to build a name for himself. Jesus lives to make the name of the Father known and glorified. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the embodiment of God's intended purpose for human life. And here's what John is making clear. The only means by which we can experience Eternal fellowship with the Father is by being connected to his Son. You see, if the Father is, if, if, if life means that we are accomplishing the will of the Father, then Jesus must be more than a role model. Because the reality is this, we neither have the inclination nor the ability to live our lives as Jesus did. Now, I know our lives are to be conformed by him, but if you are trying to get to the Father by following the example of Jesus, 
Let me save you a lot of trouble. You'll never make it. A number of years ago, there was a popular, there was a saying that was made popular, and it actually came from Reformed Christians. WWJD. I think that is one of the most arrogant expressions of Christian pride that has ever landed on this planet. What would Jesus do? See, what would Jesus do? So let me just think, what would Jesus do? And then I'll do it. And I love that one for evangelicals, especially for, for teetotaling evangelicals. I love that. Jesus is at a wedding. They run out of wine. What would Jesus do? Evangelicals would say, it must be God's will that we not drink wine. No, Jesus says, bring me some pots over here. Bring, bring, bring some pots of water. And he turns the wine into a better grade of wine than they had to open the wedding. Because, you know, when you're serving a lot of people, you start with the good stuff first. Only a couple bottles, a little shot. And then you go to the cheap stuff afterwards because they are so, you know, they're caught up in the good stuff. They won't, their taste buds are less discerning. Is that delicate enough there? Their taste buds are less discerning. What would Jesus do? You're at a well, and the only person that's there is a Samaritan woman, and she is of questionable reputation, and you're a male, and she's a female. What would Jesus do? You see, brothers and sisters, the arrogance in that, because the evangelical impulse in almost every situation is the opposite of what Jesus actually did. In him is life. In him is manifest in flesh and blood. Everything that the Father has required of us and the point that's being made is that if we want to experience eternal fellowship with the Father because the writer of Hebrews says that without faith it is impossible to please God. And we know that without holiness, no one will please God. But where do we get the holiness? Do we get it by following the example of Jesus? Or do we get it by recognizing through his light just how little our devotion is? I love it when people get up in church and they'll say, well, I want to give honor to God who is the head of my life. And I just wonder, I, that's just me as a fallen creature, and I think this way and Lord will save me one day when I get home and he won't let me think this way. But I always think, hmm, I wonder what their spouse says. <laughs> I wonder, when we say God is the head of our lives, we, we mean something good about it or by it. But we don't mean it. We, we cannot say it as emphatically as Jesus did. In him was life. Not just biological life, but the life of the soul. His mind, his will, his affections were perfectly tuned to the will of the Father. And the idea that in him is life is to say that the only way that we can get the well done of the Father is that we are attached to him. Not that we follow in his footsteps. No, following him is the result of being united to him. And the only way that we can be united to him is that we would recognize there is nothing good 
in my goodness. There's not enough holy in my holiness to be what God has required. Our thoughts have led us astray. Our affections, our words have betrayed us. God, Jesus himself says that every thoughtless word and deed will be judged. Have we not had those oops statements? I was reading a, 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 a statement last week where someone said that they need to have everyone probably in business and otherwise need to have a personal manager over their social uh, media discourse that they are to call them before you hit send. Let somebody else read it before you hit send. So that you, because sometimes we, we carelessly and callously express things that are inconsistent with what God has called us to express. So they said the wise person has someone that they'll run it by him first. You see, it's, it's amazing. Again, the, the arrogance of fallen humanity is amazing. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. As if, number one, you have a piece to spare. And number two, as if what's on your mind is worth saying. Brothers and sisters, in him was life. In him is life. In him is the epitome of what human life is supposed to be. And the only way that we can experience a life that, approve, that receives God's well done, the only way that we can receive eternal life with the Father is to be connected to him by faith. Here's the second statement. He says life in Christ, uh, or excuse me, he says that the life that is in Christ is the light, L-I-G-H-T, of men. In other words, life in Christ by faith is the means by which we are to define the totality of our lives. Verse 5, that's, that's what he says in verse 4. He says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. And then he says that, or and the life that's in him, I should say, in verse five, uh, 4, is the light of men. And he says the light shines in darkness. So the life that was in Christ is the means by which we are to define life. And so if we are connected in him, now the challenge for Christians is to live in light of their union with Christ. Let me show this to you in two places in scripture. First off in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes this way. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then jump down to verse 5. So it says, now since I'm in Christ, now that is the, the, the challenge is for me to interpret all of my experience through the lens of my being in Christ. 
that causes me to now look at my sexual affections and appetites, not through down here in the flesh, but let me view myself through Christ. So then in verse 5, he says, do not, or excuse me, in verse, in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly uh, in you. And here's where he begins, sexual immorality. Now, here's what I mean. Our sexual, our sexual appetites and activities are governed not by us. You see, in our fallen nature, we think that we can do whatever we feel. Feel it, do it, and so we become our own boss. Again, the baby who thinks they control things. But God has already, he has given us the, the gift of sexuality to experience it in a particular way. But in our fallen nature, being inclined towards self, we define our sexual behavior by our own sexual affections. Here's what Paul says. No, you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. And so he begins with our, he says, therefore, put to death. Why? So that you can get to heaven? No, but because you are in Christ. But then he goes on from there. He doesn't just leave it there. He says, and, and impurity and passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you once, you once too, or you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And notice he continues, anger, wrath, and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. Life in Christ by faith means that we define the parameters of our living according to our position in Christ. So we don't become saved by our conduct. But because we are now hidden in Christ, we redefine, we have the responsibility of redefining our affections and our appetites and telling ourselves that we are the, the, not the servants of God. In fact, look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And most of us are familiar with the first two verses, but here's what he says, beginning in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, let me pause there. What, what does he mean by the mercies of God? God's grace of giving us a Savior who has lived for our righteousness, was offered up for our sins, and was raised for our justification. In chapter 6, he tells us that we have been crucified with him who was crucified on account of our sins. So the mercies of God is the grace of God in the person of Christ that gives us a right standing before the Father. That's the mercies of God. He says, so therefore, on the basis of the mercies of God that I have given to you, I challenge you, he says, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, don't let that slip by. Living and sacrifice seems to be oxymoronic, you know, one, one cancels out the other. No, it's not. There were sacrifices, burnt offering sacrifices in the Old Testament, blood sacrifices in which the, the life of the, the, the living thing was crucified or was killed. That was the sacrifice. Then there were thanks offerings. 
and the thank offerings did not require blood. What he's saying, in essence, the mercies of God has given us the blood offering in Christ so that you can give the thanks offering. And so he says, in essence, therefore, I present you, I, I, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, thanks offerings, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does a renewed mind look like? It causes us to look differently at others and at God. The very next thing that he says after he says uh, renewing of our mind, he says in verse uh, 4, in verse 3 he says, For by the grace uh, given to me, I say to everyone among you, here's where it begins, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. You see, Jesus is the life. In him is life. And the life that is in him, there, there is the perfect life. And that becomes the light by which we live our lives. The knowledge that Jesus is everything the Father has required of us now challenges us that our point of reference is to be different. We define ourselves differently. We see this lacking so much in our present culture, whether it deals with cultural issues and, and political issues or whatever. We define ourselves by the wrong thing. Here's what he says defines you. That you are a recipient of the mercies of God. And what are the mercies of God? The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And he did the will of God. And the life that he lived, which is the perfect life that God requires of all of us, becomes the light by which we define our lives. Paul tells the Corinthians, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So therefore, I would argue that life in Christ by faith is the light by which our living is to be defined. But here's the third and final thing that we want to look at, and that seems in, in verse 6, John concludes his thought with two, a twofold statement. He says that in him was life, and that light was the light of men. But then in verse 6, he says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. On the one hand, this really defines the dynamics of our sanctification. That's the dynamics of our sanctification. What is the dynamics of our sanctification? The light that is in Christ shining in our darkness. Not just the darkness of the world, but our union with Christ shines on our darkness. And that's the dynamics of our, of our sanctification, that we see that which is in us as the light of Christ permeates, as the light of Christ drenches our consciousness. Then we see what we used to think was okay ceases to be okay. The dynamics of our sanctification 
is a matter of the light of Christ shining in our darkness, in our hidden places, in our private moments, and even in our public moments. Those things that we see to be okay, the light of Christ shines on it. And we see that we are not as okay as we think we are. That's the good thing about the righteousness of Christ. Yes, it makes us look bad. I, I often speak of, you know, working in the, the, the uh, Hollywood or in the, the television industry or working around people and, and making films and you think that you look good until you go into a dressing room when they turn those lights on. You see how inferior your lights are in your bathroom. You see, when you think you're all cute and looking good when you're in your bathroom and you look in the mirror and, hey, I'm looking good, and then you go to see what, the, what the, 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 the actors and actresses have to look at because you're under a brighter light. And all of a sudden, what looked good when you left home needs a little work. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the light that is in Christ exposes what the Lord says in Isaiah, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. What the Lord does in the righteousness of Christ, in the light of his holiness, is exposes our holiness as being all too inferior. So therefore, this statement, the light shines in darkness, is really a description of the dynamics of sanctification. And I pray to God that the light, if you, are, if you have life in him, that the light that is in him would continue to shine on your darkness. That's what conforms us to the image of the sun. But here's the second and final thing that John expresses in this. This is also the basis of our assurance. Because he not only says that the light that is in him or the, that his light shines in darkness, but it also tells us that the darkness has not up to that point and will not overcome the light. There are many times when we look around us or when we look at us and we see us messing up again and you say, well, Lord, am I ever going to make it? The light shows us that you have made it in him. And the presence of the light at the right hand of the Father is the assurance that the darkness will not overcome the light. Now here's how this manifests itself when we say this is the basis of our assurance. Because we look outside of us and we know that there is the evidence of darkness all around. Men are defining the purpose of human life along so many lines that do not line up with what God himself says. So how then, how then are we assured that the light will not be overcome by the darkness? Well, in his first advent, Jesus came to show us the light. And to show us a better way of living, to show us that the way to the Father is through the Son, to show us that we are to define the purpose of our lives by God and not ourselves, and to, to define our purpose on this planet as being connected and committed to the Father who was in heaven and to our fellow image bearers on the earth. And we have failed miserably, and therefore Jesus came, and he has loved the Father perfectly, and he has loved loved his neighbors, and he gives us credit for that. 
But brothers and sisters, when the light comes again, because when we talk about in Advent season, we not only celebrate his first appearance, but we anticipate his coming again. And when he comes again, the darkness will be exposed and the darkness will be dealt with as darkness. Our assurance is that the light always wins. That's the beauty of the song that they sang, the, the combining of heart, the herald angels sing, with Jesus is the light of the world. And when he comes, we will either be in the light and therefore share in his judgment, or we will be exposed by the light and bear the weight of his wrath. Jesus has come. And in him is life, and his life is the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness will not overcome. Jesus, the light of the world. Amen.